Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. Father, we are thankful to, to be in your presence. Uh, Holy Spirit, I just felt you overwhelming in, as we sing How Great Thou Art. So many things in our life want to rob us of that joy, but we know that no matter what circumstances are around us, we can proclaim your great name, that you are sovereign, you are in control, and that you never leave us or forsake us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, today we're talking about Christian conferencing, okay, that's kind of the old English language for it, but we call it fellowship nowadays. We'll get into why there's kind of a, why I'm going to call it two different, three different things really throughout the message, but I want to start off with uh, a question. Have you ever been new to a culture? Like you walk in, maybe maybe it's a new job, or you move cities or something, and you come in and you're like new on the block. You have to kind of ex- figure out how everything works, how people communicate, how teams function. The, and it's kind of this weird, uncomfortable trying to understand how things work, right? This is entering into a new culture. I had a similar experience. I think most of us have when we enter high school, right? We come out of eighth grade. You're the top dog in the school. You're kind of ahead of everything. Then you enter ninth grade, and it's the exact opposite. You're coming to a new school, new friends, new teachers, new administration, new culture, and you're just trying to kind of figure out how things work, right? So that's the situation. We're like a month into my freshman year. There's this little area that we call the pit commons, and you kind of walk into the school. There's like some three or four steps that go down into what's almost almost like a little pool in the middle of this area. In fact, many seniors did their prank by filling this area with goldfish, okay? They'd pump, all right, so that, that, that's what this area was, but it, it became the hangout. You could sit on the stairs. You could stand in the little area. There was vending machines. This was like before school started, this is where the groups gathered. And so one morning, I walk into the pit commons, and I'm standing there, and I'm talking with a couple of my friends, and we start to hear this rustling and loud ruckus, right? And we all whip our heads around and look and see what's going on, and these two dudes are fighting, like 
throwing hands at each other. I mean, and if you've ever been in a high school setting, we should all stop it and want it to quit, but the exact opposite happens. Ooh, get them, get them. Yeah, you cheer it on. We didn't have smartphones back then, but if we did, I'm sure we would pull them out and videotape it. It's just what high schoolers do, right? You sit there and you watch it, and it's like this cool thing until the administration shows up, and then you turn away like you weren't even looking at it. Like, what fight? I don't know what's going on. And so this fight breaks out, a very similar situation. Normally, you you, you don't stop it. You let them swing it out. But then these two other guys, huge guys, like some of the biggest guys in high school, okay, foreshadowing, they played on the football team, all right? They were some big dudes. Each of them grabbed the guys that were fighting by the waist and pulled them apart and then proceeded to sit them down in this little pit commentary beside each other. They were just fighting, and now they've been pulled apart and sat down next to each other. Like, what kind of authority do these guys have to, to get these kids to stop mid-fight, right? Then, and this all happens before administration gets there. So then the principals, they can hear it. They know what's going on. They come running in, and everybody's like, what fight? <laughs> and to me, I don't, to this day, I don't know maybe they just chose to look the other way because it was very obvious. Like there's book bags thrown down. There's a couple of guys who clothes are all over the place and there there's four guys who are out of breath. It's very clear who's been involved, but nobody says anything. What fight? <laughs> and the administration, I know there were cameras. They could have watched them, but for some reason, these guys never saw consequences from the administration. To this day, it blows my mind. There's some, there was something happening behind the scenes and there truly was, because about six or eight hours later, I'm uh, ending football practice. I played on the freshman team at this time. Freshman team, we practiced at the same time on the same field with the varsity squad, but we did not play them. We had our own freshman coaches. We had our, we played other freshman schools, our own different schedule. We played on a different night. Everything was different. Okay, so I was on the freshman team, and we go down to this separate field. We have our practice. And when we're coming back up, the varsity team is already done and headed toward the locker room, which is where we're going. And I look over, and I see these four guys standing on the field by themselves. The two huge guys were two senior linemen, okay? That's why they were so big and had so much authority. The other two guys were in the middle doing what we called rolling wind sprints, which is something you only do when you get in trouble, right? You run as fast as you can. When the coach blows the whistle, you do a front, front forward roll flip thing, come back on your feet and keep running, all right? The, there's no practical practice. It's just hard, and it's just for punishment. And so these guys, the two guys that were fighting are doing their wind sprints, and the two guys that broke it up have the whistle and are doing the punishing and so I quickly learned about a new culture, a new community that was going on. There was this, this, the way these sports teams, especially a high school football team, functioned. All right? I learned that as I graduated into junior varsity and varsity that this was the culture I was going to be a part of. A culture where we watch out for one another, don't let the administration get on to them. But we still hold each other accountable, make them run rolling wind sprints after practice. So it was like it was dealt with but it was dealt with with inside of the community. This was a day when I learned what it meant to be a part of a real community where you look, forward, you look out for each other, but you also hold each other accountable. This is what it means to be a part of Christian conferencing. Being a part of a community is, is being a part of a life-shaping force. 
It's not just a friend group. It's not just a a household. It's not a club or a people that have a similar hobby, but it is a life-shaping force in our life. There was a, an old squire that's credited for, for saying this to a king who nobody really knows where it originated. But the squire is said to say, show me your friends and I'll tell you who you are. Show me your friends and I'll tell you who you are. Genesis 1, 26, God says, let us make man in our image. Our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, creates humanity in their image. There's the very essence of the God we serve is community, and you and I are created in that community, in that image. We were never meant to do life alone. We were never meant to be human by ourselves. God looks at his creation in Genesis 128, just a couple verses later, and he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Humanity's goal was never meant to be individuals, but to fill the earth and multiply, to be a part of a group. As the, as the creation story is retold again in Genesis 2, it says that the God looked at man and he said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. And this word helper is actually used to describe God later in the Old Testament when it calls him the rescuer. So there's this sense that rescue doesn't really work because it's pre-fall, but Adam is by himself and he's, he's not how he's supposed to be. There's something that's not right. So God creates a helper or rescuer to be there with him from the very moment of our creation. We were not meant to be alone. The story continues into Genesis and you see Abraham. God says this in Genesis 18, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. This one person, this one family to multiply and become a nation of people and all nations on the earth will be blessed through him. Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. You get into the New Testament in Acts chapter 2, after the Holy Spirit has come and filled his people and Peter preaches his message, people are saved, they surrender their life, they follow Jesus. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, the breaking of bread and to prayer. It's being a part of a community. It's being together. We were never meant to be alone. And Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Andrew Thompson says it like this. One of the remarkable things about biblical faith is that it is never an individual matter. Israel is a people. God's promise to Abraham is to make him a great nation. Later, God sent Moses to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. Jesus doesn't counsel individuals one-on-one. Instead, he calls 12 disciples to follow him. The word church itself means assembly. The Christian faith certainly is something that is given to individuals, But part of receiving it involves being grafted in to a believing community. Following Christ 
being a Christian is not an individual matter, but it's about being a part of a community. And this is why we like, I like the word conferencing, because when we say fellowship, I think a lot of times we think about like fellowship hall. You guys know what I'm talking about when I say fellowship hall, right? It's a separate building that's built for the hangout time. Right when I did, when I used to be in youth ministry, we met in the fellowship hall because it was like a hangout time, or that's how they thought of it. Right, a hangout time on Wednesday nights. We used to have this wild game supper that we would do every year. It's like the one point in my life when I ate rattlesnake. You guys ever eaten rattlesnake? Okay, it's like tough chicken, all right? There's alligator, squirrel, buffalo, venison, all kinds of crazy exotic meat that I've never had other than these wild game suppers. And there was this idea of a bunch of men in the community coming together to hang out. And that's kind of what we think about fellowship. It's a time where we just get together friends. But being fellowship that the Bible talks about is more than being friends. It's more, that stuff is important and it's a part of it but it's, it's woefully incomplete. It's, it's more than just hanging out. And that's why I like this word conferencing because it's rooted in the word confer, which is discuss or to exchange opinions. It's a coming together where community shapes life. It's being, one of, it's being with one another, hearing each other's opinions and um, challenges and life advice and experiences. It's that coming together that shapes a community and makes it a life-shaping force in our lives. Where in your life have you learned some of the most profound lessons? Have you ever, have you ever been shaped in an extremely deep way? What are the events and experience that come to mind when you think about these things? If you're like me, my guess is you think about teachers or family members or friends. You think about relationships because it's inside of those relationships, it's inside of those conversations that the life change really takes place. I used to be what we call a whiner, right? Anybody know a whiner? Like they just, everything is against them. It's, it's, it's never their fault. The, everything, like it was just who I was as a kid. I look back and I cringe. I'm like, man, what was I doing? We would play video games and I would lose and the game was cheating. The game doesn't cheat, okay? What was I, why would I say? And I would, I would whine and I complain. I would cry all the time. And I can remember one time sitting in the car with my grandma, my brother and my cousin are in the back seat and something made me cry. And my brother and my cousin start going, oh, there goes the leaky faucet, the leaky faucet. And they started calling me a leaky faucet, right? And that's what was like, I, this is, I was a kid, but I vividly remember it because it was a time when a community first made me aware of something I should change in my life. Now it didn't change then because this went on for a long time. All right. But I can remember being in high school, like in high school, and a teacher said something, and I was extremely angry, and I lost my cool, and I went off on her, and I didn't know what to do with my anger, and it expressed itself in tears, and I started crying in high school. I stormed out of the class, and to this day, I wake up with these nightmares, like how did I cry in front of my friends, in front of my peers? But I remember being in that situation, recalling, man, this is not how I should behave. This is not how I should act. Fast forward, I'm in college. All right, this is, this is too old. Okay, now this isn't tears, but this is being a whiny little baby because a group of 18-year-old guys are playing a football game and they 
keep losing to Virginia Tech, and it's the wrong Tech that should be winning, and I'm really angry about it, and I'm pitching a fit, and we lose, and it like ruins my weekend, and there's this girl that I like, and she's really pretty, and I really care about her opinion, and she says, you know, I don't really like the George during football season. And I was like, man, this is Lauren, by the way. (laughs) And I was like, man, that hurts because I care about what this girl thinks about me. And it was through these conversations throughout my whole life that brought me to a breaking point of saying, you know what? This is not how I'm supposed to be. And I began to change that behavior. I began to become less competitive. I had to work at it. All right, but I became to care less about those things and to control my emotions and and learn what it means to feel anger or frustration and all these things in a healthy way. But all of that change only comes about because of the community experiences, the relationships that pointed that the way I was acting wasn't how I should be acting. Life change happens in community through relationships. Similar to the quote we shared earlier, again, we don't know where this quote originated, but it says, show me your friends and I will show you your future. When we talk about Christian fellowship as a means of grace, we are talking about how we grow spiritually through our relationships and experiences with other followers of Jesus. We are called to be a community that transforms others because we have been transformed. It's easy to hear talk about how community changes us and how community can change others and begin to think we have the power to do that. In fact, that's how a lot of relationships end up ending is because people get together and they think they can change the other person. But it's not us who changes anybody. It's God and the Holy Spirit who changes us from the inside out. 1 Peter 2, 9-10 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. A chosen people, that is plural, a priesthood, a nation. These are groups of people that have been formed, not in their own doing, but in something outside of them. And we see later that that thing that is outside of them, that has called them as a community out of darkness and into light, is the mercy of God. It is Jesus Christ's death on the cross that offers us forgiveness. We do not change on our own ability and we do not change others, but being a community is being transformed by God, called out of darkness. And when we bring others into that community with us, they can be transformed. Conferencing or fellowship or being a community, whatever you want to call it, is about believers coming together to both be changed and be agents, not of change, but agents of the one who changes. Being agents of Christ in this world and showing people that they can become better. They can become who they were designed to be. They can become more fully human. Jesus sees us. He understands where we are. He offers us forgiveness for our sins, but, it, but salvation is more than just forgiveness. It's more than just being justified. It's being brought out of the darkness and into the light, and it's being changed. And this happens inside of community. 
It's inside of these communities where we are called to pray, where we are called to share our experience of God, to seek advice, to offer counsel, to confess our sins and seek forgiveness. That's how community works. It changes our life because it gives faith. It gives our faith the legs that it needs. James says that faith without works is dead. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Listen, Galatians 2.16 is clear. It says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of law, but through faith in Jesus. You've heard it said a million times and simplified that we are, saved, we are justified by faith alone. But salvation is more than just being justified. When we turn salvation into just being justified, we create this get out of hell free card. You go to the altar, you ask God for forgiveness, you're forgiven. Now you can live like hell, but still end up in heaven later because we're justified. I'm forgiven, right? Yes, you're forgiven, but salvation is about more than that. John Wesley compared salvation to a house, right? The porch is is grace calling us in and grace given to us so that we can respond. Justification is the door of salvation. So when we we enter into salvation through the door of justification, through faith of loan, but once we get inside, there's a whole house of sanctification, room after room of transformation, room after room of being set free from the things that bind us in our lives, room after room of becoming more like Christ, being set free over and over, surrendering more and more of our lives to him, becoming more holy. All of the means of grace, but especially this conferencing, this fellowship, is where we get the legs to wander this house of sanctification. It's how we get from room to room. It's being a part of this community that calls us into more. The community gives legs to the faith. It's where our faith is made real. It's where deep change truly occurs, where we can debrief and talk about the things that God is challenging us in our lives, how we can say, this is where I'm hurting, this is where I'm confused, and we can circle ourselves with other believers who can respond and offer counsel and pray for us, where we can confess our sins and find forgiveness. This happens inside a community, and when that begins to occur, we begin to change. We begin to really see not just forgiveness, but transformation. Many of our stories of faith start with an individual experience. We're going through something and we serve a God who knows us and sees us and is a personal God who is close with us, who has entered into suffering with us. But faith was never meant to stay individualistic. It was meant to be shared as a part of a community. And this is difficult because it flies in the face of our culture. We live in a time now where it is not about the community, but it's about self. And we, we are taught from commercials to ads to conversations at work to books that are read to TV shows that are seen. We are taught over and over again to just seek self-interest after self-interest and to hop from this self-interest to that self-interest like a group of teenagers at a, food, at a mall in the food court, right? Like where there's all these different options. You just get to go to whatever you want, whatever feels nice. I remember being in youth group and going to like um, – 
Taco Bell food court and getting the Baja Blast, but then going to Chick-fil-A to get the chicken sandwich, but their fries aren't that great. So then you'd go to McDonald's and get French and you would just have, you would just have like the perfect meal, right? Because it's self-interest. You get to just go over and this is how we begin to function in life. Oh, this hobby makes me happy. This person makes me happy. This food makes me happy. And we just get to piece together all of these things that, that speak to our felt happiness. And that's the message that we receive. Do what's, what's most important in our lives is our own felt happiness. And usually this is a means of something that we can buy or an entertainment that we can experience or something that we can consume to relieve our boredom or trauma. Felt happiness is taking what we feel like we need versus what we really need. It becomes felt happiness versus discipline. It's easier to scroll TikTok instead of practicing the means of grace. To cut on Netflix instead of spending quality time with your people. To go to Dunkin' instead of going for a walk. To create Facebook instead of getting coffee with a neighbor. Our culture screams consume. It screams selfishness. It screams me first, satisfy your felt happiness. Community this Christian conferencing that we're talking about, fellowship is something entirely different. See, it requires commitment. Hebrews 10, 24-25, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. Let me read that again. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard, even when I don't feel like it. Being a part of community is being committed to it. It's going to football practice every day, even though practice is really hard. It's sticking up and supporting your brothers, even though they may make you mad at this time or that time. It's being a part. It's commitment. And this is something that, if it's committed, it's something that we're held to. And therefore, it is an intrusion on the very idea of individualistic gratification. All right, those are some big words. But, but have you ever been like standing in line at like a, the grocery store or maybe if it's like a getting movie theater tickets or the bank and then the person behind you doesn't really understand this idea of personal space, right? And so they're like a part of your group right up there with you. And you're like, is this person about to stab me? Why are they standing so close to me? Like th- th- this is not, this is not how the rules of society work. They are invading my personal space, right? And it's uncomfortable and it's awkward. You feel like it's not how it's supposed to be. And this is what community does to the individual mindset. Fellowship invades the space of the individual mindset. It makes this idea that it's all about me and it makes me uncomfortable because there's something coming in that says, you know what, it's not all about you. It's about someone other than you. It's about the community outside of you. And it invades that space and it doesn't feel right, but it's inside and it's fighting those awkward feelings and committing to this community that leads to this change that we're talking about. And this is uncomfortable. It's invading because now this group has been given power over us. They can now tell me what is good for me. You better come to practice on time or we're going to make you run because it's what's good for you to be on time to practice. They can tell me what I shouldn't do. You better stop drinking Mountain Dews every day because you're going to get dehydrated at football practice, right? They have power over me and they can tell me what's good for me and what's not good for me. 
Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Whether it's a football team or siblings in a family or a church group, that's what it means to be a part of a community, giving others power over yourself so that you can look for the greater good. And it teaches us, it teaches us how to live holy lives. I had uh, this instant where I had Britton, my younger brother, and Franklin, my younger brother, and we're upstairs. I think it's nap time, so we're supposed to be asleep, but instead we're like playing pickup sticks. You guys know that game, right? You drop the sticks, and you got to pick them up without making other ones move, and it's it's a fun game. Okay, try it. But we're playing this game, and my youngest brother goes to grab a stick, and when Britton grabs it, he moves another one, and the and his re- reaction doesn't even think about it, he drops a cuss word right there. And like, ooh, his two bigger brothers are like, you are not supposed to say that. We're teaching him right from wrong. And in order to hold him accountable, we blackmail him like big brothers do. And we force him to give us each $5 so we don't tell the parents about it, right? He's learning, he's learning at a young age how we function. Okay, now he, to this day, he, we tell that story and he's like, I, can't, I should have just let y'all tell on me. He's mad about it, all right? But there's this sense of he's learning that he's not supposed to say these words. It's a, it's a loose illustration, but you get the point. It's inside of community that we give others power over ourselves. If you believe you're responsible for others in a community, that will constrain your freedom. Sometimes we'll have to act for the good of others in a way that denies what we want to do for ourselves. For some, that might mean embracing conflict, having the tough conversation that you don't want to have because it'll make the other person better and it'll make it will relieve bitterness inside of you. For others, it means muzzling yourself, avoiding the conflict. It means not speaking up even though you're 100% sure that you are right and they are wrong. It's about looking out for the other over ourself. And this is quickly becoming an unfathomable reality for our world. When you just look at the way your coworkers interact, look at the way your extended family members interact, look at how customer service workers are treated. This is a, a election year. Look at how Republicans and Democrats treat each other. Can we truly wrestle with the idea that the most flourishing life possible is one where we say no to self so that we can say yes to the greater good? Is it possible for you and I to find identity and relationship rather than self? Philippians 2, 3-4 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as, far, as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interest of others. Christian fellowship or Christian conferencing is something we do. It's actions that we have to take and commit to, but it cannot become a to-do list. The way we do these things, the way we practice them, is what we're doing now. It's Sunday mornings. It's coming together. It's worshiping. It's praying. It's listening. It's preaching and teaching. It's talking before service. It's talking after service. This is a part of what it means to practice Christian fellowship and Christian conferencing. But we can't check all the boxes here because the setting isn't right for that. So another thing we do is life groups, right? This is where we can pray, not silently or at the altar, but where we can pray out loud for one another, where we can lay hands on one another, where we can lift up our burdens together. It's a place where we can seek advice and offer counsel 
questions for what God is calling us to, the things we're experiencing. It's a place where we can confess sins and seek forgiveness and share our experiences of God. And this is vital to Christian conferencing. We can't just let it be Sunday mornings. There has to be this other element to it. And so we're, we're doing life groups again. We're picking it back up. We have sign-up sheets in the lobby. They're going to be up there a couple weeks so that everybody has a chance to get in here and sign up. We've got two time options, Tuesday nights when we've been meeting from 6 to 8.30 or Sunday mornings from 9 to 10.30. Those are your two times. Sign up what works for best for you. If we have everybody sign up for one, that's fine. We'll just close the other one. It doesn't matter. Whatever's best for you, sign up for that. It's a way that you can practice and you can do what it means to follow to be a part of community. But it's important that just because these are things we do, they don't become a to-do list. They they don't just become competing for priority, like going to a child's practice or watching a favorite show or completing a chore like laundry. One that convicts me is even going to work, right? It's easy. We know our dependence on our job. We have to go to work so that we can get the money so we can pay, buy groceries and rent and get gas and raise our families. And without our job and the money it provides, we cannot survive. And the truth is, this is the value that Christian conferencing has on our faith. Your faith without gathering with other believers will not survive. We have to treat it with the same level of commitment that we treat our careers. Even when we're tired, we show up. Even when we're busy, we show up. Even when we feel like we don't have anything to add, we show up. Even when we feel like we don't need it, we show up. Even if you feel like you don't deserve it, you show up. It requires this commitment. Maybe the reason that you attend the life group or come to church isn't even for you. Maybe it's for your brother or sister in Christ that the Holy Spirit needs you to speak into them. There are so many things that you and I could say the exact same words, but it would carry more weight with you because I'm the pastor and it's something I'm supposed to say. I've seen this play out in our life group where we're talking around sharing and I feel like the Holy Spirit, I feel like I want to say something and the Holy Spirit just tells me not to. And so I sit there quietly and then another person in our group speaks up and says the very things that I was thinking. And you can see that there are times where your church family needs you, not me, the pastor, but you, a brother or sister, a lay member, to speak life into them. And this requires commitment. This is, there's a, you can't dabble in real discipleship. It's not something that you have to fully commit, and it's because it's in the middle when life is mundane and regular and we have that commitment that we see the change happen. You guys uh, ever seen The Notebook, right, The Notebook? I vowed I wouldn't watch it, and then I, and I kind of thought the day some girl makes me watch this chip flick is going to be the girl I marry, and that's what happened, all right? So I watched it with Lauren, and there's this part at the end, right, spoilers, where the husband climbs into the hospital bed with the wife, and he puts his arm around her, and they interlock their fingers, and they both go to sleep. We know that they're going to sleep for good. Right? And they die in each other's arms. And it's this beautiful gut punch moment with lots of emotions. You get misty-eyed, but you don't cry because you're a man. Um, but, but it's like emotional, right? Super emotional. And it's like this fulfilling, satisfying ending. But there's a reason that the movie only shows the beginning of their relationship and the end of their relationship. It's because the reason in the middle, that what's happening in the middle is just regular, old, everyday commitment. And it's that boring hard work that without it, you don't have the fulfilling, the satisfying 
ending. Tyler Staten in his book, Pray Like Monks, Live Like uh, Fools, says this about love. Love is easy at first and at last. It's effortless in the honeymoon stage when you're infatuated with each other, you're touchy, talkative, smitten, and love is breathing Love is like breathing for an old couple who are decades into mature love that has been aged into perfection like fine wine. But all those years in the but what about all those years in between? Love in the midst of building a career, raising kids, establishing a life, facing trials. Those are the long years when love has to be worked at and fought for. Those are the years when early infatuation is matured into the old couple and effortless union. Those are the years when love is won and lost. Just like love in a marriage being committed in the muddle in the middle, that's what it's like to be a part of Christian community. It's that commitment even when life makes it difficult, even when there's jobs and kids and careers and and challenges and trials and all the things that kind of distract us and make us want to give in. It's being committed and doing the hard work that leads to the life change that we talked about in the beginning of the message. There's no dabbling in real discipleship. Can we commit to one another? Can we make it work? Now, I want to end this message by honoring this group. I know we have several out today, but I preached a similar message to this about a year ago as we went into started life groups for the first time. And you guys heard the challenge and you raised to the occasion. All right, there was uh, regular attendance went up. Now we added a couple of families, but if you even go in and you take away those families, that we still had an increase in attendance, which meant that we were all attending more regularly. You committed to life group. You were there on Tuesday nights, whether you had to work late or not. And as long as I held everybody to the commitment, we were there. Now then we took a break and I didn't hold everybody to the commitment because we were kind of working out the kinks. But you guys showed up and you were there and it worked. And, I'm, and we are better church because of it today. I'm proud of what we have here at Revive, and I'm proud of how God is using our church. And I'm anticipating with great joy what he has ahead of us. But we can't let up. We have to commit to one another and continue to work to make it work. So the challenge, like this message, is the same one we ended with last year. Sign up for a life group. Be here on Sundays and be there for your life group. Be there for one another because we can't dabble in real discipleship. Christian conferencing, just like the other means of grace, they lead to holiness. They lead to human flourishing. They lead to us being more like we were designed and created to be. But they require a commitment. So let's do that. Let's pray.